Well, good morning, 9 a.m. We were talking before the service, and uh, somebody said, I wonder how many people are going to come into service in the middle of your sermon. So if they do, we're just going to stop, and we're all going to wave at every person, make them feel really awkward. Just kidding. Won't do that. Uh, Have you ever started a new job only to discover fairly quickly that the culture was very unhealthy? Okay. If your boss is in the room, don't nod. Don't say a word. There's a handful of people who work in the same place. There are a handful of uh, managers and supervisors uh, here. I'm not even going to refer to a healthy culture. Healthy cultures are, it's it's so rare, it's ridiculous. In fact, we like to use the words, a culture that trends healthy. But if you find a semi-healthy culture in a community, in a family, in a work culture, I want you to understand this. You have found a very rare thing. And in fact, if you have the privilege to be in more than one healthy culture, again, if you think about maybe the culture of your home is trending healthy, maybe the culture of the ministry you serve in is, maybe your job is, like if you get two out of three, you're a rarity in the human human world, right? This is not a normal thing. And because of sin, because everywhere you go there, we are, unhealthiness is just everywhere, So we have this great opportunity. If you find something somewhere healthy, I want you to savor it and I want you to protect it because it is very special and it can be one of the most healing environments for people when they can be around semi-healthy people. Uh, Cultural health, it's like trust. Uh, It has grown slowly over time, but you and I both know this, right? It is lost in a minute. So I want to share with you, just on the front end, to prep our minds for the text we're going to be in, I want to share with you three indicators of a culture trending unhealthy. You ready? Thank you. I love, by the way, John is like one of my favorite interactors. You may do the same as well. Are you ready? We're ready. I love it. All right. Number one, it protects unhealthy people in authority. And so here's what you find. You'll, you'll see an unhealthy manager or boss, and the unhealthy culture will create systems so that they can never really quite be exposed. But you're always going to have unhealthy people. But a healthy culture has a way of exposing them, has a way of addressing it in a way that is biblical and honoring and helpful. Here's the second. Uh, it permits defensiveness and pride, particularly from those in authority. Now, I don't care where you're at. You're going to find defensiveness and pride anywhere. You might be like, my family is the healthiest family in the world. Well, mom and dad, kids, are, there, are you going to find defensiveness and pride at times in your awesomely healthy home? The answer is 100%. The issue is not whether there is defensiveness and pride. The issue is, is it able to be addressed and dealt with in a healthy way? Here's another one. It prevents changing poor systems and practices. The inability for some communities, churches, family systems to identify and change poor practices to best practices is exhausting. Like, have you ever looked at somebody in authority and said, you're doing it this way. This way is dumb. This way is good. Do it this way and nothing happens. That's part of what happens in an unhealthy culture. Now, really unhealthy cultures have all three of these. So let me ask you a question. Let's get personal. If you find all three of these in your church, 
What are you allowed to do in anger that God would approve of? Let me give you some examples. Would God encourage you to write angry letters? Would God encourage you to go to a congregational meeting and not just speak up, but yell? Would, would God encourage you, think carefully about this, to make a whip, walk into Sunday service, go on the stage, and throw all of the instruments to the crowd, ground, and then, right? <laughs> there are some very nice guitars and instruments. Then go back to the soundboard, rip it out, throw it on the ground, and then whip you out of this building. All right, in that context, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of John, chapter 2, verse 13. I think Jesus is such a surprising character. Like, we put him in a small little box. I'm telling you, uh, so many people would be around him, and they're like, we, we don't know what to do with him. We have these rules for religion and spiritual leaders, but there's something about Jesus that, was, that just really confused people, but also compelled them powerfully. Jesus, in John 2, he has brand new disciples. They are just kind of getting to know his personality. And they just watched him, by the way, just a couple verses earlier in John 2. They watched him turn water into wine, uh, a whole lot of it, um, to, the, to the point where they realized he is not just God, but he is also the Messiah, and he is here to usher in the Messianic kingdom, which for the Jews is an enormous deal. So right after this happens, they, they have believed that this is the Messiah. Right after this happens, Passover is going to happen. And so in John chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So for the Jews, Passover is like Christmas. You just cannot escape it. It's an annual celebration. It's traditions. It's family. And everybody of a certain age would leave where they lived in the nation of Israel, and they would have a pilgrimage, if you will, to Jerusalem. It was a really, really big deal. And they would celebrate the salvation of God to Israel from Egyptian slavery and then bringing them into the promised land. This was huge. This was the most important national holiday for them. In a city, Jerusalem, typically like 40,000 people in about a one square mile area would swell to about 250,000 people during the week of Passover. Now I want you to just think about the implications structurally of this. Think about where are people sleeping. Think about water. Food, sewage, mud, not just that, but the blood and the carcasses of literally thousands and thousands and thousands of animals being sacrificed. So this, this was like, if you've ever been to Mackinac Island in Michigan, right? When you go to Mackinac Island, there are no cars. There are only horses and bikes, and the island smells like manure the moment you get off. It just smells the whole thing. And after about a half hour, you get used to it. And it's a beautiful island and a great place to be. But that first half hour is striking. Now, you enter into Jerusalem. This is a lot of people in a small place with a lot of sewage. And I, and I want you to hear me. There's a lot of, of tension happening during this week. Because Rome is on high alert, their military is on high alert, um, they are concerned particularly about a, a group of Jews called the Zealots, and they could create chaos and riots at any time. 
The tensions are very, very, very high. And the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, they want this to go off without a hitch. Well, here comes Jesus, and I need you to hear his intentionality. Jesus is walking into this city, into this annual celebration to create a scene. Everything you're about to see is going to happen on purpose. Jesus rarely is not orchestrating events. Every once in a while you see Jesus respond, but the perk of being God and knowing, I don't know, most everything, you know how things are going to pan out. And so Jesus is going to this place, and he's going to this place with the intention to make a scene. Now, again, for Christians, Passover can be just a little bit confusing. And so what you find is all of these people and what God required of every single person, I need you to hear this because this is the information you need to make sense of what Jesus does. God required that every person, if they were to access God in the temple, which is what they needed to do according to law, they could only do that if they offered a substitute sacrifice for their sins. And the law determined specifically what was permissible and what was not permissible. And there, there are two pieces of this requirement that I, I personally just love. And here's the first thing I love. I love that by requiring this annually, God is reinforcing the simple fact. It doesn't matter what generation you live in. doesn't matter where you're at. Access to God has only ever and will ever only be through a substitute sacrifice for your sins, period. Old Testament to New Testament. You want access to God? It is only ever through a substitute sacrifice for your sins, period. Number two, the way the law was set up, God had ensured that anybody, despite your financial situation, had the ability to get a sacrifice required in order for you to enter into worship. There was no discrimination whatsoever. Anybody, if you were filthy rich, if you were dirt poor, every single person in this system had the opportunity to get a substitute sacrifice for their sins that they could offer and then therefore have access to worship God in the temple. So verse 14 zooms us in from the city of Jerusalem to the outer court of, of the temple, which is in their vocabulary, it's still inside the temple. It says this, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And these were the kind of animals acceptable, permissible by Old Testament law, that if you sacrifice these, you can get in. And the money changers, and what are they doing? They're sitting there. Now, almost all of this was approved by Old Testament law. So if, if you come from far away, try bringing from maybe... 200 miles, a large oxen with you. It's not really reasonable for most people. And so what they would do is they would actually have this entire system set up, approved by law, good, where you could come, instead of bringing your own animals, you actually, for the same cost, could purchase one and sacrifice that animal. And if you were poor, you may not have had a pigeon, but you could go, and there were ways that you could actually purchase a pigeon, offer that pigeon as a sacrifice that would allow you access to God. There's one, there's one significant thing here that is wrong. It says this. They were in the temple, and I'm going to help you understand why this is such a big deal, but they were not supposed to be in the temple. Let's just uncover this and keep going, and we'll see why. Verse 15. Jesus is so angry. It says this. He was making a whip of cords. So let's be clear, who's making the whip? 
Jesus. He didn't outsource this. He is personally making a whip. Where is Jesus? There is no textual indication that he left. He is sitting, standing, something, in the temple, and he is making a whip. How long does it take to make a whip? No idea. I've never made a whip of cords. What are, what are, what are the cords? The, the cords probably were some version of wicker or rope that they would use to kind of tie up the animals. So if somebody came in and purchased an animal, there would be some loose rope or wicker. And so he would go take some of this stuff and he's sitting there. And I wonder if he's fuming. Like, have you ever like been really angry at something and then you rehearse in your brain over and over what you're going to say? You have to understand something. This isn't Jesus' first Passover. It's probably his 30th. I, I have a hunch Jesus didn't all of a sudden walk into the temple. And for the first time, he's like, you're doing what? I can't believe this. He has been watching this year after year after year after year after year. Have you ever seen something as a kid? And you're like, man, if I was in control, I would fix that. And I, and I wonder, like, if he, he, like, was he like seven years old? with a passion for his father's house. And he's like, how dare you all extort people in my father's house? Like, I wonder if he would go up to Mary and say, mom, you gotta do something about this. And she says, Jesus, when you're older, you can do something about it. But for right now, not our problem. I don't know. I wonder if he had planned this from childhood. In my brain, that's the story I'm thinking. Verse 15, making a whip of cords. He drove them all all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and it's like that wasn't enough like point made Jesus overturns the tables all right what do we know all right we know Jesus is furious why let me let me give you at least four reasons these are like four things happening um, that are implied in the text number one a logical and permissible activity exchanging money, selling animals for sacrifice was happening, but it was happening inside the building and not outside the building. The temple is not a place where the priests could sell, we'll say, sections and then make a profit and then go home and get rich off this. It was weird. Number two, vendors were jacking up the prices. So if the price of a sheep was one shekel, they charged 20 shekels. And guess what? If you were going to obey law, you needed a sacrifice to get in. So they charged exorbitant prices to get in. And by the way, all of the religious leaders, the people who ran this institution, the temple, they knew exactly what was going on. Number three, the poor in particular are being exploited. And again, the spiritual leaders are just watching this happen and not only are they being exploited, but they're getting rich off of the exploitation of the poor. So let me, let me illustrate why this is a big deal. Uh, the vast majority of people, I've actually ne never met anybody who objects to this practice. Should a church buy from a third-party vendor communion cups? And the answer is, who cares? Like, everything you see was purchased, right? My clothes are purchased. Your clothes are purchased. These chairs are purchased. If the church... We purchase things. That's not a problem. People purchase things. Churches purchase things. The Jews purchase things. The temple purchase things. Things are purchased. What if? What if we started selling communion cups inside the church foyer during a worship service? 
And then what if we set a price point that single mothers and the disabled and the poor could barely afford? What if actually people came into the church of that demographic and they, they said, I, I actually literally don't have money. And so rather than lower your prices or create an exception, you turn them away. And by you, I mean the greeters. I would never do that. What if you weren't just selling them? What if they were the entrance fee? What if you found, actually, uh, Pastor Dean and Pastor Matt and myself, were actually negotiating prices for different areas of the foyer, and we were taking a cut of every single thing that was sold? Okay, let's amp this up. What if we sat there overseeing the process, and we saw poor person after poor person, disabled people, single mothers, turned away, and they look at us as if we know you can do something about this, and we say, the cost is the cost. If you want access to obedience and worshiping God weekly with his people, it's gonna cost you. You don't have the money, so sorry. But it's too much money. We literally don't have this much money. Try harder. How, how would you feel if you walked into a church like that? Can I tell you what? We have an elder over here, John. So you can let me know after the service or just raise your hand and say terrible. But if, if I walked into Village Church or any church and I saw those kind of practices, there's an 80% chance I'd flip open the tables. You? Do you understand why that would be infuriating? What if as you walked up, three people in a wheelchair walked out and a single mother with three kids and a poor person who looks like maybe they just, they don't have, they have just ratty clothes. And they walk out crying. And as you walk in, you're thinking to yourself, what is going on in there? And you see all this junk. Do you understand Jesus' righteous impulse to walk into this place, to throw the money on the ground, to yell at people? I mean, do you understand why he can actually look at this? Start making a whip of cords, however long that takes. And then he drives everybody out to make a scene. I don't know about you, but I really feel like I understand why Jesus did this. After I kind of uncovered this, I was like, you know what, Jesus? Uh, I actually think, I don't know that I would be that far off. I don't, I don't know that this seems crazy to me. Jesus doesn't look like a lunatic anymore. He looks like somebody who understands the heart of God and the exploitation of people, particularly the poor, and it angers him as it should. Many of you have walked into churches and you see things happen and they just drive you nuts. When I go into a church and they take four offerings in the service because the first three weren't enough, you just start learning. I think they just want money. And you get angry. You're like, why is this so much about us giving money and less about pointing us to Jesus Christ and celebrating and worshiping him, right? Amen. Now, I don't know that I would go necessarily into that church, but I might call their pastor and say, man, the main thing is now the third thing, and the fifth thing might be the first thing. You can, this is all broken and backwards. But there are some levels of exploitation that are just infuriating. And you understand this. So verse 16, Jesus' words are rightly directed at a specific group of people 
Here's what he says in verse 16. He told those who sold pigeons. By the way, the pigeons were for the poor people. He looks at them and he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In verse 17, it says this, the disciples, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You you gotta understand this about the disciples. They just realized Jesus is the Messiah. And now in their brain, they're like, I wonder how many Old Testament prophecies apply to him. And as they see him doing things, they're like, wait a minute, that's another Old Testament prophecy. That's another Messianic description. Holy smokes, he meets all of them. Like, we didn't even know, we didn't even notice these things. Like, a few months back, my wife purchased a 2017 Toyota Highlander. I've, I've never thought about a Highlander. I don't think I've ever noticed them on the road. But you know once we purchased it? Do you know that everybody has a Toyota Highlander? <laughs> like, everywhere I drive, I'm like, they have a Highlander, and they have a Highlander, and they have a Highlander. I'm like, this is insanity. I had no idea there were so many Toyota Highlanders. And I imagine this is how the disciples felt. They're like, he's a messiah. This passage makes sense, and this passage makes sense, and that makes sense. And every time they watch him, they're like, wow, there's another prophecy about that. It's like he's the Messiah. Wait, he is the Messiah. And it all just makes sense. Why does he have such zeal for the house of God? I mean, there's an obvious answer, which is it's his father. It's his father's house. But there's, there's, there's other answers here, too, that I think are really important. Here's, here's one. The house of God is where people go to learn about God. They go to access God. They go to worship God. In fact, there are two places that are the primary formation of your God concept. Number one is going to be your dad. And number two is going to be church. And these two places together are forming how people actually see and understand God. And so here's what's happening. Lies are being told about who God is, greedy for your money, how he is accessed, and he is understandably angry. When spiritual authorities anywhere implicitly or explicitly communicate lies about how God is accessed, it angers God. Let me give you some modern examples. Requiring confession to a human priest communicates that I need a mediator other than Jesus. And I do not. Yes, the Bible says confess your sins to one another. Probably actually means when you sin against each other, confess your sins to the person you sin against. But do I need a mediator other than Jesus Christ? The answer is no. I have right now complete and total access through the blood of Christ to Jesus, period. I don't need another one. And I have access to the Father through the only mediator who is Jesus, period. And there are these practices that implicitly communicate that I can't go directly to him. I need someone else to stand between us. Here's another one. Worshiping icons and images communicates that God takes up residence in something other than people. And that is flat wrong. And there are Christian traditions that teach You can worship an icon because God's presence infuses and fills this icon. The Bible calls this idolatry. We don't do that. So when spiritual authorities facilitate these kinds of practices, it tells lies about how God is accessed. Now in order to find God, I don't pray to him because the spirit dwells inside of me. I have to go now through an external object. Again, that's called idolatry. 
Here, let's go a different route. When spiritual leaders give preferential treatment to wealthy people, it communicates a whole bunch, but it communicates that God's kingdom is, is built by the powerful, that there's a special seat for the powerful. I'm pretty sure that's not how Jesus teaches things, right? It's typically the poor and the weak and the outcast who are the foundation and building with Christ by the power of the gospel, his kingdom. And, and so there's actually something really, really special in scripture. If you are poor and you're broken and you're a refugee and you're a sojourner and you're an outcast, man, you have an incredible opportunity to build the kingdom of God right where you are at. Let's go a different route. Teaching seven-minute moralistic sermons or homilies communicates that, you know what, God just wants you to be a good boy or girl. Now go live your life. Just be good. Does God want you to be good? Yes. But if the culmination of every one of my messages is be a good boy, be a good girl, I got seven minutes, I'm going to preach to you something somebody else wrote because I don't actually, like, believe it. And that's all I want for you. What does this communicate? God wants you to be a good boy and to be a good girl. What does he want from you? He wants, to, he wants you to know him and to love him personally through faith in Christ. He wants you to devour his word. He wants you to understand his heart and his mind. He has revealed himself in the word of God, and he wants you to study it so that you may know him and love him. I mean, it's interesting. How we organize worship and preaching and access and communion, all of it is training and teaching us, hopefully, truth about God, how he is accessed. What we do matters. And Jesus is walking into this circumstance. He is rightly furious because these spiritual leaders aren't just exploiting and profiting. They are lying about how God is accessed. Verse 18, the scene shifts. And understandably, the money changers aren't happy. And here's what happens. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who gives you the right to kick us out? I paid the priest who run this place. And here you are. What's your name, by the way? Jesus. We've never heard of you. So why do you get to walk in here? When I paid to be here, this is how I make my living. I'm following all of their rules and you're kicking me out. Now, I think it would be hilarious if Jesus looked at them and he said, I am the pigeon. Now, you're going to get that in a minute. Just trust me, but think about it. Because what does he do? He responds with the weirdest answers, doesn't he? Have you ever seen him get in a fight with somebody who's hard-headed in scripture? It's always this ominous, strange response that they're like, what are you talking about? Verse 19, here's his answer. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? Like, you have a category for this, probably, because you know about the death and the resurrection of the Messiah and all that stuff. They didn't have categories for that. He just blew up the, the, the money changers. All the animals are running around. People are going crazy. Pigeons are flying in the air. And they say, who are you to do this? And he goes, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And you're like, this guy's insane. This guy is crazy. Now, you know that he's not referring to the actual temple, correct? Like, why does he speak like this? Number one, he speaks like this to anybody who's hard-hearted. Just read the Gospels. He's, it's almost, almost sassy, almost. But, like, imagine if he looked at all of them and he said this. Do you see this building? This is where you go to find the presence of God. I am here to replace the temple. 
I am the new temple. I am not just filled with God, I am God. And to prove it, after you unjustly murder me, my father, Yahweh, will raise me from the dead. How do you think that's gonna go? Probably not well. So, of course, this metaphor went right over their heads. Uh, They took Jesus very literally. Verse 20 says, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? And he's like, oh my goodness. And I love the author, John. He's like, okay, listen, can I just throw, reader, can I throw you a bone for a moment? Here's what he says. He was speaking about the temple, his body. That's verse 21. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples, they remembered all of this and they remembered what he said and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I want to share two so what's with you. Number one. And this first so what is in response to what just happened as the disciples remember three years later. Jesus will make complete sense of every difficult question and experience. Do you imagine the totality of this experience was utterly confusing for them? I got to imagine they're like, okay, he's clearly the Messiah. He has a zeal for God's house. I think he might be a little crazy, but we're all in because if he's the Messiah, we got this. Like, and then regularly throughout Jesus's ministry with these, with these young men, they had no idea what to do with what Jesus was saying and was doing. This event, it took three years for this event to make sense to them. Three years. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was like, holy smokes, I actually get what he's talking about with the temple. The temple wasn't the temple. The temple is his body because his body is the place where God dwells. It took him three years to put all this together and to make sense of it. And and here's what I found with anybody who follows Jesus. There are things in the Bible that are weird. And there are things that he asks you to do that are very strange. And there are experiences that you go through and you do not understand why he allowed it, ordained it, or permitted it. And you have a lot of questions. And here's what I want to tell you. You You are in a good camp with the disciples. For three years, he confused them and probably at times frustrated them. But when he rose again from the dead, they were able to look back at all of these things and go, you are so smart. Why didn't I trust you sooner? Why did I sit there at night spinning my wheels in anger and frustration and confusion? All I had to do was wait for the right moment in time where you and your genius wisdom and knowledge would reveal to me the why. And when you did, I'm going to say to you, goodness gracious, you're smarter than I am. Go figure All of my finger-wagging accusations that how could you, why did you, what are you up to, I don't get it. Now that I look back, I'm like, huh, I probably shouldn't have done that. That was probably misplaced anger. Maybe, maybe what I should have done, looking back on it, is had utter confidence that you have never failed. You are good, and you are righteous, and you are holy, and you are a genius, and you love me in all things. Actually, objectively, not in a cliche way, do work for the good of those who love you, and I love you, and somehow, somehow you're going to, you're going to navigate this stuff. Here's the second, so what? From the old covenant to the new covenant, God is only ever accessed through a substitute sacrifice. So how did Jesus make disciples? By orchestrating experiences in their life that reinforce the gospel. 
In the first though what? He orchestrates experiences that reinforce their faith. But here he's orchestrating experiences that reinforce the gospel. Here are, the, here are the messages the disciples are learning. Don't complicate access to God. It's simple. It's always and only through a substitute sacrifice. Now we know his name is, Bible answer, Jesus. Thank you. Don't create additional barriers for people to know me and worship me. Don't create divisions as if the gospel is preferential to one group of people based on how they look, what country they were born in, or how much money they have. And make sure that everybody, everybody knows that they have access to me. So there there are a handful of things created in this world by God, and they were created to visualize the gospel in everyday lives. And... When these things are messed with, typically when God gets angry in the New Testament, one of these shadows types are messed with. Let me share with you at least three of them. Marriage created to visualize Christ and the church. And and when marriage is violated, you see in scripture that God actually gets angry at this. Gender and sex created to visualize God and his unity with the church. And you want to find God getting angry? Take this experience and institution out of its context. Here's another one. The Old Testament sacrificial system is created and designed to show people how God is accessed. And when you mess with it, Jesus' reaction is anger. God is perfectly accessible through the gospel. He does not need you and I to make it harder for some people than others. Uh, I want to read you just two passages of scripture here. Um, and this is, if you're wondering, like, where else does Jesus get worked up about it? I want you to just listen to Jesus's emotions, to people who create barriers for others to, a- to access him. Matthew 18, verse 3. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, so there's children around, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But listen to this. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. You create a barrier between me and these kids, you're, trust me, Don't mess with me on this one. You make sure every child in your orbit has easy access to me. You don't add works. You don't do all these crazy things that makes it more difficult. You make sure that everyone has access to me. Here's another one. Matthew 23 is talking to the Pharisees. (laughs) It's actually a really entertaining chapter if you ever want to see like the anger of Jesus um, in full full color. Uh, Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither yourselves, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a convert or proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Let me just share with you a handful of ways 
that people make it harder for others to trust in Christ. Number one, when we add any good works to the gospel. Because that's not how anybody is saved. You cannot be saved if you try to earn it. It's a flat rule. That is not the gospel. You are only saved if you believe in Christ and what he did for you in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. That's it. So there are some people, uh, I have spoken with many Christian parents, and I'll ask them this question. How, if your child came up to you and said, uh, mom and dad, how can I know I go to heaven? How do you respond to them? Do you know how many parents say the following thing to me? I'm gonna tell them you need to believe in Jesus and you need to be a good boy and a good little girl. No, false. That is not accurate. The Bible never teaches that. There's nobody good enough. No accrual of good works will ever be good enough. In fact, the moment you add good works onto it, you destroy the entire thing. It no longer becomes the gospel. Here is the fact. You will never be good enough, but Jesus was good for you. Believe in Jesus Christ. Son or daughter, do you believe Jesus died for your sins on the cross? You believe that God raised him from the dead? If you believe in that, go to him, tell him, ask him to save you and forgive you, and you will be saved. You will never be good enough. Christ was good enough for you. Here's, here's another way that we make it really hard for people to come to Christ. We leave sin out of the gospel. The whole point of a substitute sacrifice is that you and I are sinners who have rebelled against God and deserve hell. And I understand that people don't love that. That's not real. But true conversion, a true trusting in Christ happens when somebody understands that they are a sinner. And they come to God and they need a substitute sacrifice and they realize Jesus is it. And there is an apology for sin and an ask of forgiveness. This is what it means to trust in Christ. Save me. Forgive me. I believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Here's another way that people make it more challenging. We, nobody really does this on purpose, but we create rules for the kind of people who can come to Jesus or church. You sit in church and somebody comes in and they're not dressed the way you like. We've actually seen this happen where somebody has an article of clothing on their body somebody else finds not acceptable and they say, we don't do that here. This person A isn't a Christian and I agree that by and large there's some things we don't do here but that's a weird moment, isn't it? So in order for you to walk in these doors, you have to fit some kind of, of mold. You have to have a certain kind of clothing on. Honestly, if somebody walks in here with something offensive on their shirt, my guess is they're trying to make a point. My guess is they probably have not personally trusted in Christ. Or if they have, they haven't learned that it's sin yet. We'll get there. Here, here's another one. It's, this is simple, but it's a, it's a way that we make it harder for somebody to trust in Christ. By proclaiming the gospel in anger. I don't get it. When I, when I think about the things Jesus says to me, I do not have a berating savior. I have a savior who's really quick to discipline me if he needs. I have a savior who is quick to correct me, but berating? In my brain, like when I talk to Jesus, like I don't hear a yelling Jesus. Maybe you do. 
Last time I checked, it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. So when spiritual leaders yell at people who are not Christians and they say, you need to trust in Christ, I wanna just come back. The only people Jesus yelled at were spiritual leaders who were convinced they were going to heaven were exploiting and extorting people. He met the worst of people on the planet. And this was so interesting. The kindness of God leads people to repentance. Now, I'll be honest, I, I get as a parent being angry with your kids, and rightly so at times, amen moms and dads, right? I also get being angry inappropriately so. Can I get an amen on that one? But when you have a non-Christian, as if somehow your anger is gonna move them to repentance? No, the kindness of God leads people to repentance. Or James says, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness that God desires. Anger is actually not the method that we use, but the amount of preachers and spiritual leaders who use anger to try to move people to repentance, it's backwards. You get fear and behavior modification. That's what anger gets you most of the time. Don't you want to be better than this? I don't want to create any obstacle whatsoever for a person to meet Jesus. I don't want to add to the gospel. I don't want to tell them a loving gospel in an unloving way. There, there are all of these ways that it happens all around us. And I, and I want you to see these things. And I'm hoping that none of you do any of these things. But I want you to know that they're all around us. The, the quantity, the percentage of Christians who believe you have to add good works to the gospel, it's crazy. It's almost like the default view of most Christians and, and we have this joy when people want to trust in Christ, we get to point them directly to Jesus, the substitute sacrifice for their sins, the one and only mediator. You don't need a spiritual leader or a priest. You need Jesus, the only substitute sacrifice for your sins, the only way that God can be accessed. Do you have to clean up before you come to him? Nope. Do you have to look a certain way? Nope. Do you have to come from a certain background or ethnicity? Nope. Do you have to speak a certain language? Nope. Do you have to have like a certain amount of like bad things you didn't do? Nope. Anybody at any time can come to the one substitute sacrifice mediator and be forgiven. They can come to Jesus. And here's what I want to do. I want to make that process as easy as humanly possible. And when spiritual leaders make that process complicated, it rightly angers God. And it should rightly anger us. And we want to make sure we go out of our way to say, no, I don't, I don't want to complicate the gospel. I want the gospel to be as simple as possible. Anybody can be forgiven through Jesus, your substitute sacrifice. Anybody, no matter how bad you were. You weren't good enough, nobody's good enough. Jesus was good enough for you. Now you might be here and you might have never, ever, ever heard the idea that salvation is not by being a good person. And I have incredible news for you. Nobody is ever good enough. And today, that pressure, that weight that you have felt to try to accrue more good works than bad works, throw it in the trash. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that you will never be good enough. But salvation and forgiveness is offered through those who believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins, was raised from the dead. So do you today, do you believe Jesus is your savior? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead? Have you personally trusted in Jesus? If not, I wanna invite you. You can just pray in your heart, in your head. God, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me and will you save me? And here's God's promise. Anybody who comes through Jesus 
will be saved, forgiven, and you'll be given the Holy Spirit. If that's a decision you wanna make today, um, tell somebody you came with, come talk to us. We would love to just help you take your next step as you follow Jesus. For the rest of us, believers in Jesus Christ, may we not, may we not add to the gospel. May we create, whether it's for kids or our neighbors or our family or our husbands or our wives or our grandparents or whoever it is, may we, may we not create obstacles for them trusting in Jesus. Now, what we're gonna do here in a moment is we're gonna celebrate communion and and if you have never trusted in Christ, but today you're ready, I wanna invite you to partake of communion with us. If you're here and you're visiting with us, I wanna invite you, if you have trusted in Jesus personally, partake in communion with us. It's not a village church thing, it's a Christian thing. If you're here and you're just like, I don't wanna be here, I don't believe in Jesus, like I'm not a Christian, don't partake. <laughs> not because we wanna leave you out, nobody's gonna call you out or whatever, but partaking of communion is for Christians and a Christian is somebody who is trusted personally in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So over to my right, there's a column. It's also over to my left, and then in between the double doors, and there are elements um, at each of those three places. We're gonna have a time of silence. It's an opportunity for you to talk to God, to pray, confess. When that's done, um, we're gonna sing together. Uh, and I wanna invite you in any, in, during that time to go get elements and hold on, hold on to them until the end of the song. At the end of the song, I'm gonna come back up, and we're going to partake of communion together as a symbol of our unity in Christ as we remember the only sole way that we have access to God, which is through the substitute sacrifice of Jesus. So let's have a time of silence together. <laughs>